0: hear me okay? Good morning. morning. Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jonathan Schold. I serve as the Minister of Music here at the church at West Creek. We're so thankful to Zach Bennett um, for filling in on piano today. It's really a blessing to have you here. Um, It's really an honor and a privilege for me to be entrusted with opening God's Word for us today. Our text is John 5, 18 through 29. Uh, We'll get to the text in a minute, but if you want to start turning there now, you can find it on page 890 in our church Bibles. I wonder if anyone here has ever been the victim of identity theft. I hope not. It's not fun. Um, This happened to Jenna and I about a year ago, fortunately at a low level. Um, Got a call from the credit card company saying, Mr. Schold, we've noticed some unusual activity on your account. Have you been charging a lot of money to a high-end clothing store in London? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you something, this shirt right here is off the discount rack at Kohl's. So, (laughs) So no, some imposter had claimed my name and used it to do what they had no authority to do, to make purchases against my line of credit. You know, identity theft is serious, but the stakes are especially high when the identity supposedly being stolen is God's identity. And in our passage today, we see Jesus essentially defending himself against the charge of divine identity theft or blasphemy, which means misrepresenting God or slandering his name and character. We'll pick up the text in verse 18. And just as a reminder, Jesus has just healed this man by the pool at Bethesda. And the religious leaders are criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus defends himself by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. John five eighteen through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a brief prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would encounter the risen Christ in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you ever read John and you find yourself feeling almost dizzy because of how wonderfully dense the writing is? If you're like me, you do. well, in this text, we get a few anchors that that can help us out. Because three different times Jesus highlights an idea by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or in the King James, Verily, Verily, I say unto thee. Um, in verse 19, that phrase introduces the basic idea of Jesus being one with the Father. In verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, to underscore the idea that he's authorized to give life. And then in verse 25, truly, truly introduces a longer section where Jesus talks about his authority to judge. I've taken the liberty of making those our three points this morning. First, that Jesus is one with the Father, that Jesus has authority to give life, and that he has authority to judge. Now, in the passage, you'll notice these three ideas tend to bleed together on the page. They interweave. I think the reason they interweave is because these, truth, these three truths are so inseparable in reality. In other words, they're not isolated concepts. It's precisely because he is one with the Father that Jesus has divine authority to give life and to judge. And that's the main point of this text. Because Jesus is one with the Father, he has authority to give life and authority to judge. Let me just say at the outset this big idea matters because if someone claims to have authority to give you eternal life and to deliver you from judgment but that person's an imposter and you put your trust in them you're in a bad situation but also if someone claims to have the power to give you eternal life and to judge and they're telling the truth and you don't put your trust in them you're in just as bad of a situation my friends What we do with Jesus matters, so we have to weigh his claims very carefully. So first of all, Jesus is one with the Father. And just so you know, and just so you don't worry, we will spend the most time on this first point because the other two flow from it. It's a fundamental teaching of Christianity that Jesus, fully man and fully God, is one of three divine persons within the Godhead. Jesus is not the Father, nor is he the Holy Spirit, and yet all three of these persons are one God. Chances are we're familiar with this. But I don't want us to forget that we're coming to John 5 today with the benefit of almost 2,000 years of theological reflection. Theological reflection on what it means for Jesus Christ to be the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God light of light very god of very god begotten not made being of one substance with the father that's the nicene creed from 325 and so with all we know today i don't want us to miss the drama that unfolds in john 5 because when jesus tells people who he is it rocks their world let's try to imagine what it would have been like To be a religious person within judaism when jesus comes on the scene imagine with me imagine there's a young boy named levi levi lives in jerusalem with his family they're jewish and they know the scriptures well and every morning when levi gets up he and his family recite what's been the core confession of judaism for almost for a long time ever since the days of moses Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 that we read earlier. And imagine one day young Levi goes to the temple and he hears a story about a woman named Hannah, Hannah who prays desperately for a son. And when God finally gives Hannah Samuel, she prays in thankfulness. And one of the things that she confesses is that the Lord kills and brings to life The Lord brings down to Sheol and raises up. And next week, Levi's in the temple again, and someone reads from Psalm 98. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so young Levi grows up knowing that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That it's God alone who gives life, and that God alone judges the earth. And then along comes a Jewish man from sort of a backwater province called Galilee. And this man is basically claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this man is saying things like as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then the next day, Levi hears some of the elders quoting Leviticus 24, which says that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Well, what's young Levi supposed to think? Who's he supposed to trust in questions of life and judgment? Friends, what we do with Jesus matters. I hope this little story helps us sympathize with our neighbors who may really be wrestling with questions of who Jesus is. You know, I hope it even helps us sympathize with the religious leaders in John 5. I at least think it can help us see some of their reasoning. Um, in logic, there's something called a syllogism, it's where you draw a conclusion from two statements that have a shared premise. It's basically The religious leaders are employing a syllogism in their thinking here in the text. They're saying that if the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God in a way that compromises God's oneness, then Jesus is blaspheming. And there's actually a second syllogism. It goes like this Jesus is blaspheming. Blasphemers must be put to death. Therefore, Jesus must be put to death. Now, if those initial statements are true and valid, then the conclusions have to be valid, too. But, of course, that's the question. Are those initial statements valid? I've been helped here by the work of Alec Mattia, the late Irish scholar, who points out that when Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word for one in Hebrew is not the word that means one in the sense of soul only or alone. It's actually a Hebrew word that means a one that can contain multiple entities within unity. It's actually the same word in Genesis when it says that a man will be united with his wife and the two become one flesh. So two persons within a single unity. Remember the story about my credit card? What, what if I had been on the phone trying to get the charges canceled to get a new card issued to me and all that mess. And then Jenna comes along, taps me on the shoulder, and says, Jonathan, I was actually the one who made those charges. (laughs) I hate to say it, but I can't stand that shirt from Coles that you wear every Sunday. (laughs) So I called London and I ordered you an Armani suit. So I would have said, never mind, person on the other end of the line. Those charges were authorized because Jenna has the authority to act in my name. And similarly, Jesus hasn't stolen God's identity because that identity is rightfully his. Now, I'll acknowledge right now, I cannot convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. But I will say that if ever there was a man who was God that Jesus's life and character fit what that man would have to look like to a T. Remember when an expert in the law tries to trick Jesus and asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what Jesus says? He actually quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now Jesus is setting a very high bar there Not just for everyone else, but for himself, too. But you know what? Jesus actually clears that bar with how he lives. Loving the Lord with all our mind? That means being able to honestly say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. Friends, we're supposed to meditate on God's law. But how often do we end up meditating instead on revenge or lust or greed? But think of the boy Jesus in the temple. He talked to the teachers, and Luke says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. How did Jesus know so much? It's because already by the age of 12, He had made God's word, his meditation, all the day. Jesus loved the Father with all his mind, and also with his whole heart. Now, in the Bible, the heart isn't just your emotions, it's also your will. And Jesus' greatest concern is that the Father's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus loves the Father more than sleep. That's why he woke up early to pray. Jesus loves the Father more than food. That's why he refused to turn stone into bread. Jesus loves the Father more than life itself. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane he says, Not my will be done, not my will, but yours be done, and gives himself over to death. Friends, the verdict is in. Jesus has the mind of God, he has the heart of God, he is God. From everlasting to everlasting, Jesus is the great I am. That's why Jesus looks so much like a God-man, because that's who he is. He's the image of the invisible God, and the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. Friends, do you want to know what God is really like at the core of his being? Look to Jesus, because anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Jesus' life is the most beautiful life imaginable. It's also the most terrifying. Because, believe it or not, God actually demands that level of obedience from us too. But really? Jonathan, you just said that Jesus is God. How in the world are we supposed to compete with that? Well, you know, when the eternal son of God became incarnate and took on human flesh, it's not like he lived his life on divine autopilot. Right, with his divinity sort of overriding his humanity. Jesus is one with the Father in divinity, yes, but he's also fully one with us in our humanity. Okay, but even so, no one's perfect. I mean, I'm a decent person, and I don't want to judge, but there are a lot of people out there who are a lot worse than I am. (laughs) You know what? You're probably right. (laughs) But here's the thing, is that God's test for righteousness... It's a pass-fail test, the grade to pass is 100%, and God does not grade on a curve. (laughs) James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. My friends, we're made in the image of God. We're like mirrors. We're supposed to reflect his glory in all we say and do, and through sin, we distort God's image. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that's too far off the mark From the definition of blasphemy, when we mischaracterize God in what we do and what we say. You know, Jesus was not a blasphemer, but yet he died a blasphemer's death in shame on a cross. And why? Well, not for blasphemy on his part. He died for the blasphemy of the world, for all those who would put their trust in him. And that's the great exchange. Jesus takes the test of God's righteousness passes it with hundred percent. We take the test and we fail. You know how scary it is when you fail a test in school? But here's the thing, by God's divine plan and sovereign foreknowledge, Jesus switches papers with us so that we pass the test in his name. That's the gospel. That's grace. Now we need to move on, but I just want to clarify that Jesus being one with the Father is not just a piece of Bible trivia because everything about our salvation flows from it. For example, what does it mean in verse nine, verse 19 when it says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing? Well, it can't mean that Jesus is a robot. Um, I think it has to mean at least that from all eternity, Jesus never seriously entertains the idea of doing anything other than what the Father shows him. And that is amazing news for us. Because what are the greater works that the Father shows the Son, in verse 20, so that we may marvel? Well, let's think, what are Jesus' most marvelous works? He dies for sin on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends to heaven in glory to intercede for the saints. And the only reason Jesus does any of those things is because they're the works that the Father shows him. Friends, don't think for one minute that God the Father had to twist Jesus' arm. Um, sorry, that, that Jesus had to twist the Father's arm for permission to go to the cross. There's no good cop, bad cop dynamic within the Trinity Jesus loves us, yes, but not more than he loves the Father. And Jesus went to the cross without his arm being twisted either, because he delights to do the Father's will. Friends, how do we know that God the Father loves us? Is it because we're happy, healthy, and making a lot of money? We know the Father loves us because he sent his only begotten Son that we might believe in him and have life in his name. Well, that takes us to our second point. Jesus has the authority to give life. And again, this authority stems from his relationship with his father. Verse 26, As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And verse 21 As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the the Son gives life to whom he will. If you've got a river of life flowing out of you, it's because it's the life of Jesus, the wellspring of life, who died and rose, never again to die, because death could not hold him down. I was sharing the gospel once with a co-worker when I worked at Walmart, And uh, I told this man that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. And he liked the idea of life and eternal life, but he hated it when I told him that that life comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. And in that moment in the conversation, there was no point in confronting him further with, for example, John 5.23 in our text, which says that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, this man had traveled a lot, he'd seen a lot of the world, and he told me what I imagine you have heard before, that everyone has to worship God in their own way, right? I mean, uh, Jesus works for you, that's great, happy to hear it, Um, but, you know, come on, look at all the different religions in the world, how can you seriously say that there's only one way to God? Friends, forget about there being multiple ways to God. We should be overjoyed that God's given us any way at all. Because salvation is found in no one else. Because the only names God's given us for salvation is the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? Will you will you pray today, even right now? God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy of your presence, but Jesus is worthy of your presence. I believe he's the Son of God who died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I receive him as my Lord and Savior. Amen. If you hear God's voice, do not wait. Pray that today. And if you do, Jesus promises you have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. You know, a funny thing about that prayer, sometimes people call it the sinner's prayer. For a long time, I thought praying that prayer was the step of faith that leads to life. But you know, that's actually not quite accurate. Actually, the sinner's prayer is the prayer you can't help but saying after you have been given life by Jesus. Look at me with verse 24. Whoever hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life present tense not will have eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life not will pass from death to life you see faith doesn't lead to regeneration it's actually regeneration that leads to faith well who then can be saved With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Look at verse 21. The Son gives life to whom he will. It's Jesus, not us, who brings to life. Question. What type of people need the gift of life? Is it people who are sick? Well, the sick need healing, but it's the dead who need life. Remember Ezekiel 37? Ezekiel's brought out to this valley. What's the valley filled with? Dry bones, right? It's not sick people who need some healing. It's dry bones, bodies so decayed that they couldn't respond even if they wanted to. But that's the power of God. That when God speaks, the dead hear his voice and they come to life. I can go out to Holy Cross Cemetery and start speaking amongst the tombs, and no one's going to answer. But when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. He was dead until Jesus willed him back to life, and he heard the words of God. Friends, if it was up to us to choose life, we never would. I was blinded by my sin. Had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Period. And then, then and only then, your spirit gave me life. Well, how did He do that? Well, He opened up your word to me, and through the gospel of your Son. He gave me endless hope and peace. Friends, do we pray in the days and hours leading up to Sunday morning that when the dead hear the word of God preached, that God will bring them life and give them ears to hear and hearts to believe, to repent and turn to him in faith? Do we pray that? Do we pray for our friends in Islam and Judaism And for our secular friends, those who say that when it comes to spirituality, that the journey is more important than the destination, friends, what we say about Jesus matters. Jesus recognizes only two spiritual categories, death and life. And apart from Jesus and the life he gives, there's no third category for nice, decent, respectable people who usually try their best. I know that's hard. I know it is. But please understand that if we reject the sickness, we also have to reject the cure. If we reject the Bible's teaching that Adam's sin brought death to all of us, we also have to reject the Bible's teaching that the perfect obedience of Jesus, the second Adam, brings life to all who believe can't have the second without the first. Maybe you're thinking, well, what does that mean for my grown-up children who, who don't believe in Jesus, and I've tried to share the gospel, and they just won't respond. Is there any hope for them? Absolutely, there is. Because if the Son shows them mercy and gives them life, they will have life indeed. So pray for them. Friends, if you're struggling with the idea that Jesus has to give you life before you can come to him, let me share with you the one verse that's helped me more than any other in this regard. It's John 6.37, and it's Jesus speaking. And he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Kind of sounds like it's preordained there, doesn't it? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you wondering if Jesus has given you life, if he's ordained, preordained, that you should have life? Just go to him, and he will never cast you out. And he'll give you spiritual life right now, and he'll raise you up on the last day with a body that will never be sick or sad, or succumb to death ever again. Jesus has authority to give life. And the flip side of that is that Jesus has the authority to judge. And that's our third point. Now, in our world, one of the sharpest rebukes you can receive is, don't judge me. Who do you think you are to judge me? Don't judge, right? And it is true. Jesus even tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, judge not, that you not be judged. For with the measure of judgment you pronounce, so you will be judged. So why does Jesus get to judge if we don't? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one who's never had a speck or a log in his eye. He's the only one who can wield the double-edged sword of God's judgment without having it cut him on his follow-through for being a hypocrite. Like it says in Isaiah 11, the Messiah doesn't judge by what he sees. But with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, he decides with equity for the meek of the earth. And Isaiah goes on to say that by the Messiah's judgment, he kills the wicked with the breath of his lips. Now that last part may sound uncomfortable, but actually it should be profoundly comforting to us. Because do you feel angry when someone gets mistreated because of the color of their skin or because of how much money they make or how much money they don't make? Or when your child comes home from school in tears because they're being bullied at school? Friends, we should stand for justice. But how often do we see the miscarriage of justice? Friends, God is not mocked. On Judgment Day... Every sin will be accounted for, either by Christ, who paid for sin on the cross, or by the individual who will pay the penalty for all eternity. And the judgment day is fixed. It will be perfectly fair. And the judgments rendered that day will be absolutely final. That's why Paul tells the Athenians in Acts 17 that God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And some people mocked Paul, and others said, we'll hear you again on this topic. Friends, we can scoff and say, Judgment Day, that's a laugh, that's never going to happen. We can say, hmm, uh, maybe I'll think about this later. Or we can do what God commands us to do right now, to repent. Friends, Jesus warns us about judgment because, like Steve said last week, Jesus cares about suffering, especially eternal suffering. And if we claim to care about what Jesus cares about, we cannot be indifferent to our neighbors who are lost. I wonder, did you shudder today when we sang that line in The Love of God, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call? It's a beautiful melody and the most horrific words you've ever heard. John says in Revelation that at the final judgment, people will actually hide themselves in caves, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, who? Who can stand on the day of wrath? Those who have done good. Look at me with verses 28 and 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I know I have not lost my Protestant bearings. That's the Bible. Now, yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Works are never the grounds or the basis of our salvation, but they are evidence of it. And isn't that what James says? He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe in one God? Good. You believe the message of John 5, 18-29, that Jesus is one with the Father, and because of that, he has the authority to give life and the authority to judge? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Friends, at the end of time, the question won't be, did you ever meet Jesus? Hmm. You know, you know. I think I did meet him once. Um, I remember now. It, it was at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, I think it was 1985. I went, I went out to the middle of the stadium. Uh, friends, the question isn't, "Did you ever meet Jesus?" The question is, "Do you know him?" And more importantly, does he know you? Jesus says that those who have done evil will be judged at the end of time. Now, the question is, why are they judged? Is it because they didn't do enough good works? No, it's because their lack of works will show that they have no faith. It'll show that they're spiritually dead. The reason Jesus looks for fruit is because he's looking for signs of life. And now don't go and think, oh, I'll do a few good works and then that'll prove that I have faith. That's getting it absolutely backwards because Jesus can tell the difference between the sweet fruit of faith and the dead, dry wood of self-righteousness. You can be the best philanthropist in the world, give away millions, spend your hours in the soup kitchen, and those can be good things to do. But on the final day, unless you've entered by faith through the narrow gate of Christ, all those works, they'll be like dry wood. My friends, examine yourselves. If you claim to know Jesus and there's no evidence of that in how you're living, oh, I plead, I plead with you. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if your life has no fruit, what evidence is there that you're in Christ? Oh, sinner man, where are you going to run to? Do you know that song? Sinner man, where are you going to run to all on that day? Run to the rocks. The rocks aren't going to hide you. Your only hope on that day is if you call out now, even with the weakest voice of faith, rock of ages, cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. Well, our time is running short, but let me ask you, have you turned to the Son of God in repentance and faith? If you have, praise God, if you have, Abide in him. Abide in him and in his love. Then you may bear much fruit. Not because your fruit can save you. It can't. But because Jesus is worthy of every last bit of fruit that you can ever bear. And what's the source of our abiding? Jesus being one with the Father. And we're right back at point number one. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus asks the Father that those who believe... May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. All our pride and joy for individual salvation and corporate unity can be nothing less than the mutual love and delight between the Father and the Son. One last question. What do you do when the accuser tries to steal your identity. When he comes to you and says, "You call yourself a child of God? Look at yourself. You've done 10 things wrong before breakfast, before you even got to church, and you know it. You know, sometimes he's right. Sometimes we have done 10 things wrong before we even get to church. You know, Jesus, uh, Satan challenged Jesus' identity too, came to him in the desert and said, "You're the Son of God. You're out here in the desert?" Hungry and alone? If you're really the son of God, prove it. But what did Jesus do? He stood on every promise of God's life-giving word. And Jesus, knowing the word of God for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding for God's children. Friends, when Satan tempts you to despair and starts accusing you, saying all kinds of things about what you have done and who you are, look to the Son of God who died for your life and who bore the judgment for your sin, and hold fast to him because he's the one who holds you fast. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing the Son your plan from all eternity, that Christ should have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. And Lord Jesus, may you be pleased to give abundant life to many, that they hear your word and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.